0: Hello, you're listening to the Social Protection Podcast. Welcome to the next episode in our special six part series brought to you by ODI and GIZ in partnership with socialprotection.org. I'm delighted again to welcome Francesca Bastali from ODI as guest host for this series. We'll be back with a regular episode in August.
1: Hello, and welcome to this Social Protection Podcast special series. I'm your host, Francesca Bastallo. Today's episode is part of a six-episode series based on an ODI-GIZ-funded project on social protection response to COVID-19 and beyond, lessons learned for adaptive social protection. Over these six episodes, we'll be asking, has COVID-19 marked a turning point for social protection? In our ODI-GIZ study, we covered six thematic areas, each with an accompanying paper. Each week of this podcast special series, I'll be joined by the lead author of one of the papers, along with an expert discussant. In this week's episode, we look at social protection, implementation and delivery. The pandemic has led to disruption and new pressures on social protection systems. Pandemic containment measures such as lockdown regulations, restrictions on movement, and social distancing requirements have in many contexts led to additional challenges to social protection implementation and delivery. The rise in need and demand for social protection has also added pressures on operations. This includes rising demand among millions of people who require urgent support to cope with the crisis and who were not previously covered by any form of social protection policy. In a crisis of this scale, delivering assistance to the high number of people affected in a timely manner is key. Across the world, as we see in our ODI study with GIZ, countries have adopted adjustments and innovations, including relying on new technologies to step up provision and extend social protection. What do we know about whether these adjustments have worked or not? What lessons are emerging for social protection in the longer term? Some of the innovations hold potential to strengthen social protection systems, yet others raise questions about the inclusiveness and sustainability of adjustments moving forward. Here to discuss these questions with me today is Christy Lowe, Research Officer at ODI's Equity and Social Policy Program, and lead author of the paper Cash Transfer Responses to COVID-19, Operational Lessons for Social Protection, System Strengthening and Future Shocks, which she co-authored with Anna McCord and Rodolfo Beasley. Along with Christy, we have Madomita Hebar, a social protection expert working on Maintains, a five-year FCDO-funded research program led by OPM, as well as with SPACE, the GIZ and FCDO-funded social protection approaches to COVID-19 expert advice initiative. Christy Madumita, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, Francesca, it's great to be here.
3: Hi, Francesca, thanks for having me here.
1: The COVID-19 crisis has highlighted how powerful social protection can be, but it's also exposed the gaps and inequities in existing policies. As we see in the ODI study, some of the population groups most badly impacted by the crisis are also those that aren't covered by social protection or receive only weak and, and inadequate support. Some of these gaps and inequities are linked to operational and implementation challenges that aren't new. Many of the adjustments to operational stages to social protection made since the onset of the crisis explicitly aim to address these gaps and limitations, at least in the short term. Christy, what are the operational adjustments that governments have taken to reach those in need of assistance who were not included in existing social protections in advance of the the crisis?
2: As you say, Francesca, there were uh, some operational reasons why people were excluded from social protection systems before the crisis. And one of those operational barriers was really to do with data limitations and the fact that certain groups were simply not registered uh, or not visible in the databases that social protection agencies use for their programming. So to try to fill these data gaps during the crisis response and And to find those who weren't previously listed in social protection databases, governments had to use various approaches. One approach was to invite those in need of crisis assistance to apply for emergency programs. And this sometimes required registration in person. But given the need to avoid physical interaction wherever possible, in the COVID response, we saw a much higher use of digital application Systems than in the past, and that included applications online or by email, also by SMS, or even by WhatsApp. And for some countries, this was actually not a method they'd been using at all in their routine social assistance systems. So to give you an example, uh, Togo, in their urban cash transfer scheme for informal workers, which was known as Novisi, um, there the government didn't have any national social registry to draw on when the crisis hit. So what they did was to launch a new SMS registration system for people to apply via text messages. And they managed to set up that system in only 10 days. And within three weeks of its launch, one in three adults in Togo had applied. In that case, the government of Togo was then able to process the applications by checking applicants' occupation and residence information against the data that they held in another database, which was the National Voter ID Database, uh, which fortunately for them, they had just updated earlier that year because of of elections. That example then brings me on to the second major strategy that governments used during the crisis to, to try to find and select people who weren't in their social registries. And that was the approach of drawing on databases and information sources held outside of the social protection sector. Sometimes that meant looking at other government agencies' databases, but it also, because of the the need for really just a quick response, it also meant looking at what databases existed outside of government uh, that governments might be able to use. So, for example, we saw in Sierra Leone, uh, the government made use of informal worker associations membership lists to find people for their emergency cash transfer scheme. Another interesting example is from Nigeria for their COVID urban cash transfer program. Um, They found that their pre-COVID social registry really had very minimal urban coverage. So what the government did was to start out by using satellite imagery data to uh, find the highest priority, the highest poverty urban areas, and they then looked to a whole host of different sources to try to identify the priority households within those neighborhoods. Uh, So, for example, looking at uh, civil society databases or NGO databases, but they actually even considered looking at uh, mobile phone and bank databases to try to figure out who was the most vulnerable during the crisis based on their bank account and phone top-up history. I think my final point, if I may, on this would be that when we think about the different approaches that governments used, these aren't mutually exclusive. And, And I think this is a key point. It was very common for governments to rely on multiple strategies to reach the many different groups of people who were affected by the crisis and who needed emergency assistance. So they often started out with the information in their social protection databases and then added other Identification mechanisms as they went along in a kind of iterative manner, because you need to basically be pragmatic and start with what you've got, but then you also need to be proactive in assessing who's being missed by those strategies and developing targeted approaches to bring those people in.
1: So, we've heard some really interesting examples of how governments have been tackling the data and information barriers to extending social protection to previously excluded groups. And we've also heard about the potential benefits of relying on a range of different information sources. Madumita, how well did the approaches that Christy just described work in practice? What role did different identification and selection processes play? And within these, what role did technology or digital approaches play as enabling factors?
3: I'll touch upon one of the strategies that Christy mentioned, which in fact was one of the most popular ones during this uh, crisis, which was on demand registration or self registration, right? Which is basically allowing those who are in need to come forward and register. Now, this strategy by itself was not novel in that it was not uncommon pre COVID. But as Christy mentioned, many countries did switch to digital modes of doing so instead of relying on physical interfaces, right? Uh, now, from a technology standpoint, this kind of approach requires a very accurate estimation of demand and the search capacity, as you can have uh, a, a massive case of broken websites, server outages, so on and so forth. Uh, That can cause quite a bit of beneficiary frustration, as we saw in many countries. For instance, the emergency cash transfer for informal workers in Thailand, where any informal worker could apply for this benefit online, was oversubscribed by nine times, right? I think the government initially estimated about 3 million applicants, but in the end, about 27 million people applied, which understandably meant that the technology infrastructure could not uh, cope with it, leading to widespread outrage among the beneficiaries, at least in the early days of implementation. From an equity perspective, um, digitalization can indeed make registration processes efficient and faster. But I think what's important to emphasize is that it's not efficient and uh, faster for everyone. It does leave behind the digitally excluded, who are also often the most vulnerable and therefore in need of social assistance. And this was a concern even pre-COVID, which only magnified further with the onset of the crisis and the rapid shift towards digital modes of registration. Where countries uh, use some sort of intermediaries, either in the form of civil society partners or e-governance kiosks to help people go through these online experiences, or where countries complemented the digital approaches with physical windows instead of relying on a digital-only approach was where I think the risk of uh, digital exclusion was lower.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, Madamita. Those points really resonate with the the findings that we saw in our research relating to digital registration systems. I think in terms of the effectiveness of the other approach that I mentioned, uh, that strategy of trying to find and select people by drawing on other government or or non-governmental databases, I would say there were two big keys to success for that approach to really work well, one is that these other databases that you're drawing on really have to be good quality. So that means being up to date, being relevant uh, for the type of information you need. And of course, being inclusive, because the aim here is to reach groups who were not included in, in social protection sector databases. So That was one key point. The other, I think, is to do with the arrangements in place to actually access that data quickly and securely when the crisis hits. So there, I think that the Nigeria case that I mentioned really comes to mind, because although they did have all sorts of ambitious and and really interesting ideas about how they could find vulnerable urban residents through various channels, in the end, they couldn't actually implement the programme until early 2021. Uh, And that was in part because they didn't have a large scale, high quality ID system to be able to rely on, to be able to link up different databases using a unique identifier. It was also because the data protection arrangements that they had in place pre-COVID weren't really strong enough for these more advanced kinds of uh, data exchange. So that that definitely kind of delayed and, and really hindered what they were able to do in rollout.
1: We've talked about the measures taken to promote the identification and enrollment of people into social assistance and and cash transfer schemes in the crisis. What about the approaches used to deliver support, specifically cash assistance, and to deliver payments rapidly to the large number of people affected? Christy, what were these approaches and innovations?
2: In a lot of cases, old school manual distribution mechanisms were still required. Uh, But even there, we did see some very interesting adjustments that governments made to try to reduce virus transmission risks and and reduce the amount of in-person interaction. Uh, So to give you an example, in Sri Lanka, officials actually went uh, to people's homes to hand deliver emergency cash payments where the recipients were particularly vulnerable to the virus and, and therefore needed to be shielding. In other cases, we saw in-person collection, people turning up uh, to collect their payments in person, but there we also saw adjustments. So, for example, staggering payment schedules so that not everyone would be collecting their payments at once, or also introducing hygiene and and social distancing measures at collection points, although admittedly those uh, measures weren't always adhered to very well. Having said that, I do think probably the most striking aspect of the crisis response in relation to payment delivery was the heavy preference for digital disbursement, wherever feasible. And that was obviously based on the theory that these digital payments would uh, help to reduce in-person interaction and therefore reduce transmission risks. So, for example, where people could receive emergency payments through bank transfers those were often used, Uh, but we also saw actually a much greater use during this crisis of mobile phone-based payments than we had previously. Uh, So some countries such as Togo and such as Peru uh, used mobile money or or mobile wallets to make payments where they hadn't actually been using those mobile-based mechanisms in their routine cash transfer programs.
1: So growing reliance on digital disbursement and mobile money appears to have been common in many contexts and possibly accelerated by COVID-19. Governments will have faced challenges that made digital payments problematic before COVID, so gaps in banking systems or mobile networks, high dependence on cash for market transactions, low levels of digital and, and financial inclusion or literacy. Madumita, how did governments try to get around these problems in the crisis and how successful
3: were they? I think governments tried to tackle these challenges from different fronts, and it'll be good to look at them case by case. The first challenge was actually to open some sort of digital account for those who were outside of the ambit of the financial system prior to COVID-19. And one of the reasons why people were excluded pre-COVID was due to documentation requirements. And many countries temporarily eased account opening norms to ensure that people could actually get some sort of financial identity. That was the first approach. Some countries circumvented account opening altogether where emergency cash transfer beneficiaries could withdraw cash from an atm using a one time pin received via sms rather than having a permanent financial account in their name and despite all of the focus on the digital in many countries non state actors continue to be important intermediaries similar to how they were in the case of registration into these programs for instance bangladesh which is a country that i closely studied Three million garment factory workers opened mobile financial service accounts in a record time of one month, uh, a process that trade unions were instrumental in facilitating during this uh, crisis. So once people did get some sort of financial account, the second challenge, which was a big challenge even pre-COVID, is related to cash out. Despite the considerable push towards digital finance over recent years, Research has consistently shown that most beneficiaries immediately withdraw cash and their daily transactions continue to be cash based, which means that you do need to have financial infrastructure and the last mile network necessary to support the withdrawal of cash. Now, given the unprecedented load and limited scalability, transaction failures have been an issue in uh, some countries especially during the peak of the lockdowns when everyone was trying to uh, access cash. The second thing is around having enough pay points in the last mile, which has also been a challenge and continue to be a challenge even during uh, uh, COVID. Some countries did try to mitigate this uh, by adding temporary pay points or following staggered payment schedules to ease out the burden, which I think Christy also alluded to um, in her discussion earlier. These approaches
1: raise a number of questions on longer-term social protection development. Are these adjustments and innovations here to stay? will they help to address pre-COVID operational limitations or is there a sense they may end up replicating or even reinforcing these challenges? Madhumita, you described how governments set up new ways for people to request assistance during COVID-19, sometimes by, by sending a text or filling in an online form, other times presenting themselves in person. In your view, do these adjustments hold potential to bring people into systems in a more permanent fashion? Contributing to more inclusive and comprehensive social protection policies and systems in the longer term?
3: Historically, countries have relied on poverty lists that are static, right? Despite the fact that poverty itself is very dynamic. In that sense, it's been very heartening to see COVID 19 normalize the idea of on demand support that is, support that is given anytime an individual's livelihood is adversely impacted. Does this signal a longer-term change in how social protection is delivered? It's too soon to tell. This kind of dynamic inclusion faced a number of structural challenges even pre-COVID, which unfortunately cannot radically change overnight. Limited budgets are among the top reasons why countries rely on fixed lists, because it gives them a way to control and rush in social protection provisioning. So, unless these underlying causes are remedied, any commitments to dynamic inclusion via self registration based approaches uh, could be hard to realize. I would definitely watch out for countries where COVID 19 has catalyzed long term reforms to ensure this kind of responsiveness to changes in household well being. For instance, Cambodia is a very interesting case where the country scaled up their on demand model. Of updating the social registry via local governments nationwide amidst the crisis, and is now permanently replacing static lists with this kind of responsive dynamic registration approach. Indonesia is another country that's looking at expanding the coverage of its registry from 40% to at least 60% and streamlining mechanisms to continuously update the data at the local level so that people can become eligible for social protection programs as and when their circumstances change. These will be important experiences to keep an eye on to see how they tackle some of the structural challenges around financing and capacity as these experiences evolve.
1: We also talked about government efforts to proactively reach those affected by the crisis and previously excluded by social protection. Christy, you mentioned examples of how social protection agencies tapped into information from a range of databases, from across government departments, NGOs and workers' associations, and also companies like mobile network operators and banks. Were these practices accelerated during the pandemic because of the particular constraints on in-person data collection? Do you think they're likely to continue into the future post-COVID? And if they're here to stay, what is it about these innovations that promises to support progress towards more inclusive and adaptive social protection.
2: I do think that many governments look to rely more heavily on existing sources of data during the crisis because the pandemic circumstances made in-person registration and in-person assessments particularly challenging. As you alluded to, Francesca, this was a pre-crisis trend that was, has been accelerated. So we saw you know, in Chile and Turkey, Jordan, before the crisis, all of their social registries were either on a continuous or, or on a very regular basis, updating the entries, drawing on multiple government databases. In terms of the opportunities there... Yes, there definitely are some potential opportunities to improve service delivery. We all know how frustrating it is when you uh, have to keep repeating the same information uh, to multiple different government kind of agencies when you have a change of address or a change of household circumstance. Uh, So there's some convenience benefits there potentially. And also uh, being able to flag when someone suddenly becomes in need of assistance. There can be benefits in terms of being more responsive there. But I would say that There are definitely many risks and and challenges associated with this. And I think the former UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, Philip Alston, he wrote in 2019 a very powerful report about the risk of, I think he said, stumbling zombie-like into a digital welfare dystopia. And that was in part based on looking at the experience of how this is playing out in high-income countries as well, like Britain and like the Netherlands. And there are many concerns about how kind of advanced technologies and the use of data and algorithms are actually being used more to cut costs and to survey and even punish and exclude people from welfare systems rather than really being used to expand access in an inclusive and transparent way. And so I think, depending on, of course, the data itself, which can uh, often hold a number of of biases, and, and also depending on the way that it's used there are real risks that the the digital welfare state may lead to further discrimination actually against particular marginalised groups if the uh, the approaches that are used aren't well designed and and implemented and of course regulated. It was uh, encouraging to see this year that the focus of the latest World Development Report was on how data can be used best for development and the uh, kind of policies and regulations that are needed to counter some of the risks. But It's really all about how that's put into practice to protect people's rights and promote their well-being in practice.
1: Chrissy, so you've made a reference to the digital welfare state or indeed digital welfare dystopia in relation to social protection management practices, particularly around those identification and selection stages of social protection implementation. But of course, this applies to other aspects of social protection, to the type of transfers or services provided and and the mechanisms used to deliver them. And in today's episode and in the ODI-GIZ study more widely, we've heard a lot about the widespread use of digital cash transfers as a crisis response instrument to this crisis. What are your thoughts on whether the innovations in digital payments that we've seen during COVID-19 might help address some of the payment delivery limitations, or whether indeed there there are some concerns there? And what can governments do to try and address these challenges if they're looking to increasingly rely on digital payments in the future?
2: I think in relation to your first question about whether these kind of COVID practices are here to stay, that will definitely depend on where the governments see the biggest long-term opportunities and benefits. And when Madamita was talking about the effectiveness of different payment approaches during COVID, she noted that some of them are really designed to be very temporary. She she was talking about the the use of one-time pins to kind of collect digital payments when you don't have an account. Those types of measures, I think, were very much crisis response innovations, and perhaps we'll see them in future shock responses, but they they wouldn't make sense to introduce into routine systems because in those systems, you're making multiple payments over time. And so it makes sense to support people to open a full-time account in those cases. But there were also a number of digital payment practices that were used during COVID that definitely, I think, are set to continue. And the general trend of trying to increase the proportion of payments that are made through digital mechanisms, that existed before COVID, and COVID has, I think, rapidly accelerated that. And the reason why governments are, are increasingly looking to digital payments is in part because they do see potential to improve On some of the payment challenges that they had with manual mechanisms in the past. So there is the potential for digital payments to improve the speed, uh, the efficiency, the the convenience uh, and the transparency of payments in, in social protection systems. And of course, also to promote financial inclusion more widely yeah, in certain cases, governments are already kind of acting on their COVID responses to institutionalise the the digital payment approaches. And an example there would be Togo. Uh, They've already uh, got plans underway to switch to mobile money as their main mechanism for all cash transfers, not just the Navisi crisis response payments. And they're starting to look now at what it would take to provide universal access to mobile phone devices and, and mobile networks across the country to use mobile money in the routine cash transfer scheme that they have?
3: Well, there are benefits to be had, as Christy mentions. I do worry about some of the risks related to accountability that emerge from the kind of big role that digital payment service providers are playing in this sort of radical shift towards digital payments digitization of payments without adequate data protection standards does expose beneficiaries with low levels of digital and financial literacy to increasingly complex financial markets from which they have very little recourse, right? And in the worst case scenario, it does expose them to instances of financial fraud. And we have... Already seen this materialize in the case of South Africa, where social grant beneficiaries were targeted by predatory lending practices, and in Brazil, where the Bolsa of familiar recipients were targeted by a WhatsApp scam offering additional benefits.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that. There are a lot of risks. And I think one of the ways that we should think about trying to address those risks is also to think uh, a bit more about focusing on both complaints, the kind of complaints and appeal systems within social protection systems, and also the ongoing monitoring and evaluation efforts. uh, Because those two uh, aspects of delivery are quite often neglected, and they tend to be overshadowed or during the COVID response, at least, I think a lot of the focus was on the identification stages, the payment stage, but the sort of complaints and monitoring stage, those don't always get as much attention and they do need to be a major priority because really it's no use innovating in all the other aspects of delivery if you don't have the mechanisms in place to make sure that innovations are actually working well for people and to correct and resolve issues when people are really struggling.
1: Hello, Madhumita, Christie. as you know, the the guiding question of this special series of the Social Protection Podcast is, is this a turning point for social protection? And we've talked a lot today about the adjustments and innovations to social protection implementation and delivery since the onset of COVID-19. But in conclusion, what do you think are the most promising developments and which are the ones you're concerned about? Is this a turning point in the
3: delivery of social protection? Madhumita, let's start with you. The crisis has definitely given momentum to some of the pre-COVID trends, but it doesn't necessarily represent a radical shift in the way things are done. Whether social protection programs and systems will be more responsive to needs in the future, I think it's too soon to tell. I'm a bit skeptical if the extraordinary increases in budget that we saw during this crisis will become a permanent feature going forward. The digitalization of social protection delivery was already happening, but COVID definitely has given this trend a renewed impetus. And as I say, never let a good crisis go to waste. So COVID-19 has opened the door for more aggressive pursuit of digitalization along the social protection delivery chain. Whether it's targeting registration payments or grievance redressal. What is less clear is how much of this will be rooted in maximizing welfare versus minimizing costs. And I definitely uh, hope it's more of the former than the uh, latter.
2: I agree with the. The point that Manamita made around certain operational approaches definitely being accelerated uh, by COVID. And I think whether COVID is a true turning point will depend on much more on the broader investment in system capacity coming out of this crisis. Uh, So when we think about system capacity and the impact of COVID, on the one hand, significant operational capacity has been developed during this crisis response in terms of new data, in terms of new learning. But at the same time, COVID has also put operational systems under intense pressure. Uh, And that pressure, I think, unfortunately, is is very likely to increase as fiscal space tightens. And also, I, I think when we look at system capacity and how that's been influenced by COVID, there has been a very heavy focus on certain aspects of social protection during the crisis. I'm thinking there, obviously, of cash transfers, But we know very well that comprehensive social protection is about much more than just monetary transfers, and it requires investment in a broader set of services and infrastructure. And that kind of narrow focus, if that continues out of this crisis, and it was indeed a bit of a trend going into the crisis as well, if that continues, I think that could really be a hindrance to broader system development. So basically, I think, Whether it's a turning point for a given country will depend on how that government, uh, along of course with international partners, uh, how they respond to the wake-up call that COVID has presented uh, and how effectively they institutionalize the learning from this crisis uh, and make those necessary investments to address the system gaps and weaknesses that we have seen uh, so that we can uh, work towards more inclusive and adaptive and, and sustainable provision in future.
1: Thank
3: you, both Christy and Madamita. Thanks, Francesca and Christy. It's been great speaking to the both of you on this topic.
2: Yeah, thanks from me also.
3: If
1: you'd like to read more about this topic, the paper by Christy with Anna McCord and Rodolfo Beasley is available at ODI's website at odi.org, along with other papers and resources from the wider ODI-GIZ study. You can also check out the earlier podcast episodes from this special series. And stay tuned for next week's episode, where I'll be discussing urbanization and social protection response to COVID 19 in urban contexts with Kiti Rowland from IDS and Ugo Gentilini from the World Bank.
0: The Social Protection Podcast is a production of socialprotection.org which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and stay tuned for the next episode.